On today's episode of the London Lyceum, Brandon and I talk with Dr. Roger Turner about freedom, foreknowledge, moral responsibility, and all that goes on with that. So a lot of people think that there is some sort of dilemma with the fact that God foreknows particular things and the potential for us to have free will of some sort. So we talked to Dr. Turner, who, who is an expert in this this type of area, about this quandary. Is, is it really a dilemma? What are the solutions to it? And then are there any really better questions to potentially ask for it? Uh, you know, one thing I, I love about doing this podcast is talking to so many interesting, smart guests and bringing in people who have differing viewpoints. Uh, so I think this one is really fun. Dr. Turner is great um, at explaining things and being really in-depth on these issues. So I think you're really going to enjoy the episode, uh, and we'd love to hear your feedback afterwards. Let us know your thoughts, uh, what you think, and, and how you might respond to this particular dilemma. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that hopes to encourage deep thinking, particularly among Baptists, because uh, as, as we've spoken of before, we think Baptists oftentimes have a penchant for not thinking very well. So we want to increase that, uh, but not just among Baptists, among all denominations. Um, but we, you know, me and Brandon are Baptists, so we, we, we tag that on there. But one of my favorite things about podcasting, and the way we do it at least, is I get to talk with incredible people um, all the time. And it's really fun to just learn from them and talk to them. Uh, and I've really been blown away by the kindness that, I, that I've experienced with all the different guests that we've interviewed so far. And today's guest is just another example of that. I mean, he's been emailing me back and forth uh, questions about our topic today, which is the free, freedom and foreknowledge dilemma uh, and what, what all that exactly entails. And it's just it's really cool to see how gracious and kind and, and helpful all these different people are. So I want to introduce you to our guest, Dr. Roger Turner. And I'll let him give the primary introduction to what, what he studies, what he likes to do, and just a little bit about himself. But I do want to just mention that he is an expert in this this type of discussion. So we wanted to talk to him about freedom and foreknowledge and what all that looks like. Because if you didn't know, there is some sort of challenge with the idea that God knows the future and if we have freedom. There's been a lot of questions about that throughout church history, and that's uh, and philosophy too. So I think this is a fun topic, and I'm looking forward to talking to him about it. So Roger, why don't you give 30 seconds of about yourself for the listeners who may not know who you are? Uh, yeah, first of all, just you know, thanks for the kind words, and I'm really happy to be with you guys this evening. This will be fun. Um, yeah, so my name is Roger. I'm an assistant professor of philosophy at a junior college in East Tennessee called Walters State Community College, and I teach mostly uh, intro level philosophy courses. My research is mostly in the stuff that we're going to talk about today, uh, issues surrounding free will, and um, we won't talk a whole lot about the thesis of causal determinism, which is more of a scientific kind of thesis. We'll, we'll touch a little bit on that, but um, my dissertation, for example, was on that kind of issue, the compatibility of uh, free will and um, causal determinism. And actually, it was less on free will. And as we'll talk about later, and you'll see why I want to focus more on this, it's more about the compatibility of moral responsibility and causal determinism. And now my research is starting to focus more on like this question that we'll talk about tonight, which is um, foreknowledge or theological determinism, you might call it, um, and 
free will and moral responsibility and that kind of thing. I've also written some stuff on religious epistemology uh, that you can find in print and, uh, and that, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Awesome. And, and you went to the University of Tennessee, right? My PhD at the University of Tennessee under E.J. Kaufman uh, and David Palmer. E.J. Kaufman was a disciple of Al Planting at Notre Dame, and David Palmer was a disciple of uh, Bob Kane at the University of Texas. Good stuff. I mean, my, my dad's from uh, Knoxville, so I, uh, go Rocky Top. <laughs> uh, well, that said, I mean, maybe we can just uh, set the table a little bit. I know we've mentioned a few things already, but just kind of explain to us what exactly is freedom um, when I guess maybe the ordinary person uses it, or maybe the theologian philosopher has a different take on it. And then what is foreknowledge? So both of these topics that we're going to talk about, just give us some sort of definition for them. Yeah, I think the definition of freedom or free will, as far as like what the common person or the person on the street might think of it will depend on who you ask. Um, I think, you know, the one sort of main ingredient in every definition you'll get is something like being able to do what you want when you want to do it. Um, and I think when philosophers and theologians think about what freedom is, they'll say some, something like this. They'll say um, freedom is the ability to do what you want to do when you want to do it. And then they'll add in this stuff about like for reasons of your own, devoid of manipulation or coercive external forces. That's one way to define it. And then another way is going to go something like, it'll say all that. Freedom's the ability to do what you want, when you want to do it, for reasons of your own, devoid of coercive external forces and so on. And then they'll add on this bit, and the ability to do otherwise than you in fact do, holding fixed the actual past and the laws of nature. And um, that little bit there at the end makes a huge difference in how you think about freedom and whether or not you think it's compatible with uh, so causal determinism, which is the thesis that there's exactly at any at any instant, there's exactly one physically possible future. And it will influence how you think about freedom with respect to, you know, whether or not God decrees what you and I do or anybody else does. Um, if you have that, uh, that conjunction added on the bit about, um, and the ability to do otherwise than you, in fact, do holding fixed in the causal determinism case, either the actual past and the laws of nature, and in the theological determinism case, like you know, God's eternal decrees or something like that. If you have that bit in there, you're not going to think freedom is compatible with those two theses. So that's really the question. Hmm. And, and then, and then you asked about foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is a uh, I think foreknowledge is pretty simple to define. It's just knowing uh, before <laughs> something happens. You know, if I knew, suppose I knew yesterday uh, that I'd be doing the, this podcast with you guys. Suppose I knew. So obviously I believed I'd be doing this podcast with you guys today. But suppose that belief counted as knowledge. Well, then yesterday I had foreknowledge about uh, about our you know talking this evening. So there's... There's another concept that I guess is pertinent to this discussion, and that's um, accidental necessity. Can you take a few moments just to uh, define accidental necessity for us? Yeah. Um, so this is, a, for me, this is a tricky-ish concept. Um, but I think the idea is supposed to be something like this. Suppose yesterday I was meeting with my um, community group over Zoom, which in fact I was doing, and um, so 
the the truth value of the following proposition is t. So if we think of propositions, they're declarative statements, right? And they've got truth values. It's either t or f. <clears throat> so the truth value of the proposition: Roger met with his community group on Wednesday, April fifteenth, two thousand twenty. That's t. Given that that proposition is about a past state of affairs, the fact that that is true seems to be something that no one, not even God or anybody else, can do anything about. It's just over and done with, you might say. Uh, this is what um, people call, uh, I mean, I think, um, I think Occam called it this, ac accidentally necessary, and what uh, Nelson Pike began to call a hard fact about the past. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit later about the differences between so-called hard facts and soft facts. But the idea is this sort of necessity at issue or hardness at issue has to do with the fact, if it is a fact, that no one, not even God, has any control over whether or not that proposition that I just mentioned a moment ago is now true. It's over and done with. Um, it's fixed. You know, it's part of the past. John Martin Fisher calls these sorts of truths um, power necessary truths because they're truths over which nobody has any power. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. So now that we've got these definitions in place, what what is the dilemma here that we're because this whole conversation tonight is about this supposed dilemma between God's foreknowledge and then uh, genuine freedom or free will. So can you lay out what the dilemma actually is and talk about how uh, foreknowledge at least possibly restricts uh, freedom? I could tr I could try. I'm not super convinced um, that there is much of a dilemma here, but we'll talk about it. So, so suppose, suppose God foreknows everything that I'll do before he creates me. And on a traditional theistic conception about God and his foreknowledge and so forth, um, God does know beforehand what I'll be like and what I'll do before he creates me. Now, uh, add to this that God has what you might call infallible foreknowledge, where that's just the idea that um, whatever God knows about the future it's not so much as possible that he'd be wrong about it. Now, you and I, we have, we, or we, at least we could have, foreknowledge about the future. Like yesterday, I had foreknowledge about, say, I had foreknowledge about this conversation that we'll be having. Um, but we can't say that it's infallible because even though just as a matter of fact, my belief about what we'd be doing count as, as knowledge, it's still perfectly possible that I might have believed the same thing, but I would have, been, I could have been mistaken about it, right? Still had the right. Belief ended up being false. False, um, but God's belief, obviously enough, is not like that. If something were different about the future than what He actually believes, then God wouldn't believe that thing in the first place. So God has infallible foreknowledge, right? So God's got infallible foreknowledge. Now suppose God knew ten thousand years ago, or however long you want to make it, ten thousand years ago, that I'd be speaking to you guys this evening. You might reason something like this. All right, so here, here's an argument. And uh, I sent uh, Jordan some notes, and you might, if you have the notes in front of you, you can just read along. And folks, if you're listening, you can write it down or whatever. <laughs> um, it, it might go something like this. Premise one, necessarily, if God believes that P is true, then P is true. Premise two, God believes that P is true. So, three, necessarily, P is true. Four, if necessarily P is true, then it can't be otherwise than the fact that P is true. So, conclusion, it can't be otherwise than P being true. Now, replace P with some action that you're 
currently doing, like talking to me or whatever. Um, according to this argument, it can't be otherwise than that you talk to me just now. And on at least that second way we defined freedom um, just a few minutes ago, uh, that's a problem because freedom on that view requires the ability to do otherwise. Then you, in fact, do holding fixed whatever thing you're thinking about, either the past and the laws of nature or God's eternal decrees or whatever. And if I, if I can't do otherwise than P or if it can't be just generally speaking otherwise than P or if you can't do otherwise than P or whatever, and P is about what you are doing or what I'm doing, then neither you nor I nor anybody else can do otherwise than they in fact do. And so you're not free in that sense we've been talking about with respect to what you do. You're not free with respect to whether or not you talk to me just now. Now, um, if you know anything about like just elementary logic um, and you thought through that argument I just gave, you'll see that it's at, at that version of the argument is fallacious um, mm -hmm. because the modal operator goes from the first premise to the third. It just skips the second premise and you can't do that. Um, so that's an argument that some folks have tried to run and that's a very sort of I want to say like a layperson's argument, even though they won't talk in terms of necessity and so on, because they won't use that language probably. But I think that's what they have in the back of their mind. But as a matter of fact, that argument is fallacious. So in order to get this dilemma really up and running, you'll have to give a more nuanced argument that um, is actually valid. The argument I just gave is not valid. So um, here's, a, here's another argument if you guys are ready for it. Um, so, so do the argument like this. Go premise one. If an event, call it E, if an event E occurred in the past, then E is accidentally necessary or a hard fact or whatever language you want. Yeah. Premise two, God believed 10,000 years ago that I'd be doing this podcast with you all. So three, God's past belief about my doing this podcast with you all is um, accidentally necessary or a hard fact or whatever. Four, but no mere human has any control over what is accidentally necessary or is a hard fact. So no mere human has any control over whether or not God believed 10,000 years ago that I'd be doing this podcast with you all. Six, I'm a mere human, so I have no control over whether or not God believed 10,000 years ago that I'd be doing this podcast with you all. Eight, if I have no control over whether or not God believed that, that is whether or not he believed 10,000 years ago that we'd be doing this podcast, then I have no control over whether or not I do this podcast with you all. So conclusion, I have no control over whether or not I do this podcast with you all. So, I mean, you know, th there are different ways you could uh, run that same kind of argument that would be equally valid. Maybe there are better ways to do it. This is just the kind of version I came up with as I was thinking about this question. Mm -hmm. Or whatever, whatever the right way to put the argument is, you can see the thrust of it, I hope. But the idea is just supposed to be this. God's beliefs are located in the past. Mm -hmm. makes them hard facts. They're facts about the past. We're saying, here's a, here's a, past, uh, a fact about the past. God believed that P. All right? It's, so it seems to be over and done with. In the same way that if I said, it's, you know, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, that's a fact about the past. That's over and done with. Neither you nor I nor God, it seems, even now has the power over uh, the truth value of that proposition. It's true. There's nothing you, can I, you, you or I can, can do about that. And, uh, you know, if God's beliefs, his past beliefs are, are like that, then it follows that no one now has any control in the sense we've been talking about. 
um, over what God then believed, since some of what God believed is about what you and I and anybody else will do, it then follows that neither you nor I nor anyone else has the relevant kind of control over what God then believed. And since his beliefs guarantee we do what we do, it follows that we don't have any control, at least in the relevant sense, over what we do. Um, does that make sense so far? Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, so so the next thing to think about is this. Does foreknowledge, so does God, is it really true that God's knowing it ahead of time, this having foreknowledge, even in, infallible foreknowledge, does it restrict our freedom? There's a reason I kept saying as I was explaining the argument a moment ago that depending on the kind of freedom you have in mind mm-hmm. will restrict or it could restrict um, whether or not we're free. And uh, that's because, so some folks think um, God's foreknowing ahead of time is incompatible with our doing things freely. Call those people incompatibilists about foreknowledge and freedom. Um, other folks think that those two things can be co-possible. They're compatible call them compatibilists about uh, foreknowledge and freedom. The only thing I want to say there by caveat is I'm using the term just now of incompatibilist and compatibilist in a way that's different from how you might use it normally in the free will discussion. Mm -hmm. Because usually when we say like a compatibilist, we mean somebody who thinks free will and causal determinism are Um, Mm co-possible. But many, maybe most people who are in, who are compatibilists about God's foreknowledge and freedom are also incompatibilists about causal determinism and uh, free will. So, yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that's that that's helpful because I, I do think those terms get really slippery because it seems like they're relating to different concepts and different people use them in different ways. So, if you're not aware of all the ways it's being used, it can be unhelpful at times. Yeah, that's, um, it reminds me, so like in, um, in epistemology, there's a view called internalism and another view called externalism, mm-hmm. but those same words are used in the philosophy of mind and they mean yeah. completely different things. So if you have a philosopher of mind and an epistemologist talking about whether or not um, internalism is true, they're going to disagree, but only because they're equivocating. And I feel like sometimes a philosopher who's thinking about compatibilism or incompatibilism and a theologian who's thinking about that might be talking past each other, you know? Yeah, def- I definitely think that's the case. At least that's my experience anyway. So g- given this, um, what are the typical responses to this dilemma of freedom and foreknowledge? And are there any costs or benefits to the various views and responses to the dilemma? Um yeah, so there's a bunch. Um, but before I before I spell those out, just real quickly, I want to say, based on the argument I just gave, maybe it's not super obvious why there's a dilemma. Um, if the dilemma depends on your view of freedom, I guess it depend on more than just your view of freedom. It might depend on why you think or how you think God foreknows things about the future. Um, if you think that God foreknows things about the future based on causal determinism being true. Well, that might explain why you think uh, freedom and foreknowledge are incompatible because you think causal determinism and freedom are incompatible. If you think that God foreknows things because he, uh, you know, eternally decrees them and you think God's eternal decrees are incompatible with uh, freedom, then that would also explain why you think 
divine foreknowledge is incompatible with uh, freedom. But it's not immediately obvious that that's why God knows things ahead of time. It could be for other reasons. And uh, we, we might talk more about that later. Yeah, that's good. Um, so, okay, the responses <laughs> to this dilemma. There's a, I mean, there's a ton. And I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert on all these views, okay? Um, <laughs> I can, I, I think I can lay out <clears throat> the basic groundwork for at least some of the popular ones. Um, so, so let's just think in terms of that argument we just went through. Uh, so one thought goes like this, deny that second premise, all right? Uh, where the second premise says, God believed 10,000 years ago that I'd be doing this podcast with y'all. Mm-hmm. Well, one way to deny that is just to say that God is outside of time, right? So if you take God outside of time, it just follows immediately, I guess, that none of God's be- beliefs occurred at any time. And so if they don't occur at any time, they don't occur at past times. And so that means God doesn't really have, strictly speaking, any past beliefs and so it would follow that none of God's beliefs count as these things that are so-called a- accidentally necessary or are hard facts about the past. Oh, I guess your listeners can't see. I'm doing air quotes. <laughs> uh, none of his beliefs, because they're outside of time, they're not going to be hard facts about the past. They're not accidentally necessary. They're not power necessary. Whatever, whatever terminology you want to use, they're not those things because they are outside of time because God is outside of time. They're atemporal or whatever however you want to, um, you know, word that. I, I think this is Boethius's way of trying to deal with this alleged problem. Um, so again, on this view, at least strictly speaking, God doesn't have any past beliefs. And so if he doesn't have any past beliefs, he doesn't, strictly speaking, know anything about the future while he's in the past. So if that's the case, he doesn't actually have any foreknowledge, all right? And if there's no foreknowledge, then there's no freedom foreknowledge. Problem. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. So I, that's one, I think, um, I think that's a common way, actually. I mean, uh, I think it's attributed to Boethius. Again, I'm not like an, a specialist on that stuff, but I, I think it's attributed mostly to Boethius. But I also think many Christians just sort of in the you know average church pew, if you posed this uh, alleged dilemma to them, a lot of them would say something like that. Um, I yeah. make this guess only because I've talk to people in you know regular church views about it before and that's what they usually say um and i do think that that would solve the problem i mean at least as it's worded because it gets rid of foreknowledge uh but i it's got some costs uh that view that god is outside of time at, at least for me from my perspective it's got some uh some costs i mean the the um the sort of trivial one that's not a very difficult bullet to bite would be uh, something like this. It's just not obvious what it means for God to be outside of time. I I don't know that I can make much sense of all that, Uh, but that might be a limitation to my, um, my ability to imagine things. Okay. There are lots of classical theists who have no trouble, I guess, imagining that God is outside of time. And I don't want to say that they're being disingenuous. I just, I guess they have better imaginations than I have. So <laughs> it's not easy to imagine what that means. So, so let's set that one aside. I think a, a, a heavier worry is just reading the Bible. I mean, mm-hmm. reading the Bible, it sure seems like God knows things ahead of time. Now, uh, that 
too isn't a super huge worry. I mean, it is the Bible's written by humans for humans. I mean, I don't want to say the Bible's written only by humans. I happen to have the belief that there is a divine author in the mix too, but I, I think humans wrote the thing. Yeah. And they, they're writing to other humans, and we are temporally located creatures. We can't help but speak uh, with temporally loaded language. So, of course, we're going to speak of God in temporal terms. I mean, what else are we supposed to do? It doesn't follow from our using temporal language to, to give pictures of God that that's you know, anything more than speaking by way of analogy. Um, and, I, and I admit that that's true. It could just be analogical language from our limited perspective, and we just, you know, write things down as if God is acting in time or knows things ahead of time or whatever, because that's the best way we can make sense of God. But having said that, um, I just <laughs> I think that there's more than analogy going on. And I, maybe that's just because I can't imagine what it means for God to be outside of time. Um, so those are, the, those are the light worries. Uh, I don't know if you want to get into my heavier worries, but um, if, if you're okay with that, I'll just say my i think i think the worst thing is so uh, tra- traditionally christians have the following hope i take it so um at least i have this hope as a christian that at least as the story goes in the bible at the end whatever the end is call it the eschaton new creation whatever when all things have been consummated the new heavens and the new earth have been made one I think the story ends like this. All the bad things that have happened will, so to speak, come undone. I don't know how that works out. I don't know how God undoes bad things. But man, I hope that's true. I want that to be true. Um, but here's the deal. Imagine, an, uh, uh, here's the problem for the person who thinks that God is outside of time. Imagine a newspaper headline that reads like this. Hitler kills millions by genocide. I can imagine a headline like that. Maybe there was one. It seems to me that that proposition was true, but is now false. So like at the time it was printed, it's true that Hitler kills millions by genocide, but it's now false because for one thing, there is no Hitler. Hitler's dead. So he's not killing anybody, right? Um, But since God believes well, I guess it depends on your view of the normal view of omniscience is that God believes all true propositions. So let's take the normal view of omniscience and say that God believes all true propositions. Well, if he believes all true propositions, okay, then he believes that proposition, Hitler kills millions by genocide, when it's true. But if God is outside of time, then it seems to me that proposition, at least from his perspective, uh, can't go from true to false. Okay? So God now, and I realize now is a temporally loaded word, so make that, make that the eternal now or whatever language you like. Mm-hmm. God now believes that Hitler kills millions by genocide. And if God believes it, it follows automatically that that proposition is true. It's now true, even if the now I'm using is the eternal now. All right? It's now true that Hitler kills millions by genocide. And that proposition will never be false because God will always, in the atemporal sense of always, believe it. And uh, I don't, I mean, I don't myself like that conclusion. Um, So I just reject that view because I think 
those horrible propositions are, or at any rate, become false at some point. I think that's the hope Christians are supposed to have. Now, again, I'm not a, an expert on that, so you can just take that um, with a grain of salt. Yeah, I was going to say, doesn't Paul Helm spend like a couple chapters talking about that type of thing in his book? What is it, Eternal God? Oh, probably. It's been a minute since I've read that, so. That's me too. I'm trying to, I was looking for it on my shelf to see if I could find it because I feel like he spends a bunch of time talking about how to understand this topic, um, particularly about, I guess, propositions and true the truth value of them um, for God who's outside of time. Yeah, right. Um, I think they, yeah. Um, I, so lots of people have tried to deal with this uh, problem. None of the ways people have tried to deal with them have been convincing to me. So I, all I can say is just the problems I'm mentioning here are problems I have with it. Yeah. I'm not saying that there aren't really smart people who have good answers to these questions. There are, you know, Paul Helms is a way better philosopher than I am. So, <laughs> you know, and his answer will probably, or it might satisfy you. I'm just saying, personally speaking, it doesn't satisfy me. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's one way to go. You could just go to the atemporal route, and if you do that, you, you know, lose the the problem altogether because foreknowledge, so no freedom foreknowledge problem. And if you're happy to bite the bullets about propositions not changing the truth value, and somehow that doesn't, you know, nullify the idea that. Um, you know, got, you know, all the bad things come undone in the end, you know, I, I suppose, great. I just, I can't make sense of the atemporality of God or um, much else. And I can't make sense of the idea that propositions don't go from true to false, especially when they're about things that seem for me to be all the world about the past. Yeah. Uh, that's one way to go. Yeah. So can you, um, I guess for sake of time, um, I definitely want to hear your take on the open theist view. So will you take a few minutes to to talk about that possible way out of this dilemma? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So open theism is the idea. I mean, to put it briefly anyway, it's the idea that the future is truly open where that means something like there aren't any non-trivial or not very many non-trivial truths about the future. So, um, God might have foreknowledge, okay, but, it, but it's all trivial. It's things he'll know, for example, like tomorrow, it'll be true that two plus two equals four. Now, if you're an open theist, you know, you're going to have to be something like, you're going to have to think God is in time. Uh, because here you're thinking about God's foreknowledge. And again, if, you're, if God's outside of time for you, there's no foreknowledge. So open theists think God uh, could have foreknowledge. But again, it's all of the trivial sort. It'll be necessary truths that can't possibly be false. Of course, he'll know it'll be true tomorrow that two plus two equals four. But what he won't know are things like what I'll do, since presumably anyway, it's up to me and it hasn't yet been decided uh, what I'll do. And so on their view, because there's no truth about it or because it hasn't been settled because I haven't done anything, there is no truth value to the proposition that Roger will whatever, wash the car tomorrow, all right? There's, it's neither true nor false. It's, it's not a, there's, there's nothing uh, that that proposition is about because the future doesn't exist on that view. Um, it's truly open. Um, so yeah, does that make sense? That's the view of open theism? Yeah, yeah. So what, what, would, be the, what would be the cost to taking that, taking that route? Well, I, so 
I, first of all, the, I think the, the bonus of taking that view is if God doesn't know what we're going to do ahead of time, you can't really blame him for what we do. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, it's like he's caught, he's caught by surprise too. He has a hope for humans. You know, he puts Adam and, and Eve in the garden and so on. He instructs them not to take the fruit of the knowledge of good and bad. And he's really hoping that not, they're not going to do it. In fact, he's probably got a pretty good idea that they won't because he knows their characters. But dang it, they do it. And it's, ah, oh, crap. Um, so now I got to, you know, do contingency plan A or whatever. All right. And, th- and that kid's got off the hook for, you know, the problem of evil. Right. I mean, so there's all this evil, but God's caught off guard by it. It's not his fault. Mm-hmm. So on. Um, and it also removes the dilemma of freedom and foreknowledge because God doesn't know in advance what we'll do. It's up to him. Or I mean, sorry, it's up to us and not up to him. So you get rid of the dilemma that way. The problems, I think, are pretty obvious. Um, now, I'm not saying they're, you know, that you can't solve them or something, but they're they're pretty obvious problems, and you're going to have to do, spend some time thinking about them. Because for one thing, the Bible seems to suggest. I mean, I think it just flatly presupposes that God does know what people will do. I mean, for example, that Judas would betray him. Mm-hmm. So this is a knowledge. This is knowledge about what somebody will do or would do in the future. He also knew that Peter would deny him. I mean, there are a bunch of places where God foreknows things, and in fact, there are places where God foreknows things that don't, in fact, happen. Like there's a story in First Samuel 23 where David asks Yahweh, "Hey, um, is Saul and his guys are they going to come and destroy the city and capture me?" And Yahweh goes, "Yep," and you know, of course, that causes David and his guys to run away. So what God knew would happen didn't, in fact, happen. Um, so that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Bill has the picture of God knowing things before they happen, and, in fact, in cases where they don't happen. So I think open theism is has a hard time with just the way the Bible is written. Um, and, I, you know, people have tried to offer answers for that. Uh, Greg Boyd's got some interesting ways to think about that. Um, I, I'm not myself convinced by any of those views, but you know, um, people can decide for themselves. I think a, a, a second problem with this view is that it's, it seems anyway to remove some of God's sovereignty. Uh, and I think most Christians want a strong view of God's sovereignty. They want to believe that God is, at least in some sense, completely in control over the direction of, you know, the world and the goings-on of the universe and, and, and all that stuff. But uh, open theism seems to remove that strong sense of sovereignty. Um, because at least in some non-trivial sense, and I guess in a seemingly untoward sense, God's plans depend on uh, what human free creatures are going to do and our decisions. And, um, and I, my, you know, I myself, I'm not actually troubled by that bit. I don't know what is the untoward way of thinking about that, but that's at least an, allegedly a cost. In any case, it makes God, this is Thomas Flint. He goes, uh, on this view... God is not the greatest conceivable being. He's like the greatest conceivable bookie. Uh, the bookie than which none greater can be. <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, on the open theist view, they still think God is incredibly smart, so he can play the odds better than anybody. Right. And he can be fooled, you know, because he can't know, because there's nothing to know about the future. So it's not a problem for his omniscience, but it is a problem, I think, um, for his sovereignty. Yeah. 
Go ahead, Brandon. Well, I was just, I mean, Jordan, do you want to take time to have him go over the Calvinist view since, I mean, most of our listeners are going to identify as a Calvinist. I don't, I mean, they're probably already familiar with that way out, but I don't want to not talk about that if, if Dr. Turner, yeah, if you think so, it's I mean, something we definitely need to go over. Yeah, I know you've all, we've, we've, we've skipped Occam, uh, which his view is crazy to me. Uh, we've skipped the Molinist, which is fine with me because I think we, we, we're we hopeful at some point to have Greg Welty come on and talk about Molinism. That was why I skipped that, yeah. So for those who are listening and really want to hear that, uh, hopefully we'll get that done at some point. So I guess, yeah, let's let, why don't we talk about this, the Calvinist way out. And then I do want to talk to you a little bit about after that, about this foreknowledge restrict. Is there a better question to ask? than this freedom and foreknowledge dilemma type question. Sure. Yeah, yeah, good. I'd be happy to talk about, I mean, any and all that stuff. Um, so, okay, the Calvinist view that I'm going to give, maybe not everybody who's listening who identifies as a Calvinist will accept. It's going to be somewhat stereotypical. Um, but I do think a lot of Calvinists will accept this view. Uh, yeah. The idea goes something like this. So God eternally decrees everything that happens. And by the way, I don't think, you have to be just a Calvinist to have this view, okay? I mean, I think um, lots of classical theists, even if they aren't Calvinists, are going to have something like this view. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the view is God eternally decrees everything that happens, but even so, humans do what they want to do when they want to do it, and that's enough to have free will. So this is like that view of free will I described way back at the beginning, that the compatibilists about causal determinism and free will will have. It's just the ability to do what you want, when you want to do it, <clears throat> free of coercion and manipulation, and, and that kind of thing, right? So on this view, uh, human free will is consistent with God's having eternally decreed all that is going to come to pass, right? Um, and so the important thing to see here is that this view of freedom leaves out that bit about having the ability to do otherwise, yeah. back view and so on. All right. Uh, you know, the the bonus to this view is obviously it grants God maximal control over history. There's no doubt that this view is true. There's no doubt about whether or not God's plans are going to work out, whether or not God's will will be done and so on. Um, and that's all very attractive, uh, but at least for me, from my perspective, and I, and I say this as somebody who was a Calvinist for almost all of his life. It wasn't until I did my PhD that I started to back off it a little bit and then more study of the scriptures and just life experience um, turned me away from Calvinism. So I say this, you know, as uh, somebody who has a soft spot for Calvinism, <laughs> actually I, I belong to a reformed church. So, um, so I'm, I'm, I, I, I enjoy being in that setting, even if I don't any longer um, accept the thesis, but um I, I, I am attracted to the idea of God's complete control and so on. So I think that's quite good. But um, I think that there are considerable costs. Um, the first is that I think if you take the Calvinist view of things, you're going to have to do some fancy footwork to explain um, what seems obvious. I mean, maybe I shouldn't use that word, but what it seems like the, the Bible is saying um, in the first you know, few pages, first 11 chapters, maybe of the Bible, or maybe the whole story up to Jesus anyway, which seems to be this, that God's will can be thwarted by human decisions. Um, I think that's the whole point. And God is like, until Jesus looking for the one faithful Israelite, and then he comes himself to be the one faithful Israelite, 
because his plans to restart the human project just keep being thwarted by dumb human decisions. Um, and I don't want to say God is not sovereign over all that. I just think what I mean by sovereign and what the Calvinist means by sovereign are going to be different. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, <clears throat> but, 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 but I think there's a worse problem and, and it's something like this. So take the following case. This is something like a manipulation argument against um, the compatibility of causal determinism and, and free will. Here we're going to do a, a manipulation argument against, against the compatibility of Calvinism and free will, or maybe more importantly, moral responsibility. So take the following case. Suppose, uh, suppose we found out tomorrow that Hitler's mom was a time traveler from the future. So like if you've ever seen um, The Terminator, ever seen the Terminator movies? Yeah. All right. So, right. I mean, John Connor comes back in time. So suppose, uh, suppose Hitler's mom is like that. And she comes back set on destroying the Jewish people for some reason. So she travels back in time. She gets married. She has a son. And when her son is born, she implants in his brains this mechanism that will instantiate or inculcate in him the same kind of hatred for the Jews that she has, complete with this nefarious plot to destroy the those people and take over the world and purify, quote unquote, the human race and all that stuff. So suppose that's true. I think if I read in the paper tomorrow that, you know, Hitler's mom had done all that to Hitler, I'd have to anyway conclude that Hitler didn't have any control over what he did because he was pre-programmed to act the way that he did. I mean, if anybody had the control, I would guess it was his mom and not Hitler, you know. Um, I think the Calvinists, though, in this uh, particular situation, they'd have to bite the bullet. They'd have to be like, well, look, uh, Hitler wanted to kill all these people, right? Um, And he did what he wanted to do. So he had the relevant kind of control over what he was doing. And I just don't at all find that plausible. so if we switch that into the bit about God, like foreordaining or decreeing what you or I do, it seems to me that's relevantly similar to Hitler's mom putting the, the, the mechanism in uh, Hitler's brain. I think um, if anybody's to blame for what I do, if God eternally decrees what I do, um, if anybody had any control over that situation, uh, it would be God and, and not me. Um, yeah, so there's, that's, I think that's a major problem. Brandon, you you're uh, gonna say something? I, I I'm trying to decide if I want to get down this route or just <laughs> um. I'm sure you have an answer for this, but I'll just ask you. So, it seems like your objection reads an, an awful lot like the objector that the hypothetical objector that Paul brings up in Romans nine chapter. I mean, uh, verse nineteen, where he says, "You know, well, how can God still find fault? For who can resist His will?" Do you think? that that verse pushes back against your objection at all, or, or would you just interpret that verse in a totally different way? I do think that verse is difficult for my position. Yeah, for sure. Um, but having said that, I, I want to say yes to the second part of your question. I, I think um, the way Calvinists want to uh, interpret that verse is um, maybe not the best way to interpret it. Now I say that, you know, not being a biblical exegete myself or it needs not a professional. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, take that for what it's worth. But I, I, I think um, there's a dialectical context there that um, is not really 
related to the question that we're talking through here, if that makes sense. Yeah, so it seems that the the key problem here is related to moral responsibility, um, which I think you've mentioned that that's a better question to really ask. So why don't why don't you walk me through th- this idea of moral responsibility and and how that relates to this problem? Yeah, so we've been so far talking about the problem of foreknowledge, divine foreknowledge, and freedom. I don't myself take a lot of time to defend arguments that have to do with whether or not freedom and foreknowledge are compatible, mostly because I think freedom is a very confusing word. I mean, I've been using control as a, as a synonym, but I mean, what's control either, you know, I mean, what I mean by control is going to be something having to do with uh, the ability to do otherwise. If you're a Calvinist in the, the sense I've described, it'll just be something like being able to do what you want to do when you want to do it free of coercion and so on. And maybe you have this like conditional power, uh, if you had wanted to do differently, then you could have done differently. Uh, but I, I, that stuff is just a morass, in my opinion. I think better, yeah, is thinking about moral responsibility. And now I, I admit, I, I don't really have a clear, clear definition of that either. But uh, I think it's it's clear enough if you just think about it for a second. So what I would ask you to do is think about something that you've done that you know was really wrong. And now think about that deep sense of guilt you felt, or even maybe still feel, even after mm-hmm. having rectified the situation, or maybe if there's a hidden thing you've done wrong, like even worse, right? You can feel it in your gut. That that feeling, that thing, that's what I mean by moral responsibility. Now, I think if you understand what I mean by that term, I want to know, I or I think the better question is, is divine foreknowledge compatible with you being right in feeling that about the bad thing that you've done. Okay. I think that's the better question to to ask. Um, Is there a a conflict between those two things? I think the answer is no. And I think it just depends on how you think God foreknows things. I mean, so I mentioned, you know, a little bit ago, if you think God foreknows things based on, you know, his putting into place a, a, deterministic causal system, then I think there are going to be problems uh, with foreknowledge and freedom. Or if you think that God's eternal decrees, or not freedom, sorry, uh, causal determinism and uh, or foreknowledge and moral responsibility. And I also think the same thing is true if you think God uh, knows in advance what I'll do because he's eternally decreed what I'll do. I think that too is going to come into conflict with moral responsibility um, and I think that's true based on um, a cousin argument to this really popular kind of famous argument in the free will literature called the consequence argument, uh, which is developed by Peter Van Inwagen. Um, lots of philosophers and theologians have talked about this argument, this consequence argument, but very few people by comparison talk about the direct argument. And I think that's a real shame because the consequence argument talks about control, which again, I think is a, a morass to dig through. The direct argument doesn't talk about that at all. It just talks about moral responsibility. And uh, it, if you have, if you if you don't mind, I'll just give it to you real quick. Yeah. Okay. So assume the following two inference rules. So rule A. It's going to say these are creatively named. Okay. Um, rule A. <laughs> if it's if it's a necessary truth that P, then no mere human is morally responsible for P. 
right? I mean, just think two plus two equals four. It's, that's necessarily true. Uh, I, yeah, I have nothing to do with that. You can't hold me responsible for it. Rule B uh, is the second rule. It says this, if no mere human is morally responsible for the fact that P is true, and no mere human is morally responsible for the fact that P implies that Q is true, then no mere human is morally responsible for the fact that Q is true either. So take those two rules. Hmm. Now we'll put them in an argument. This is a pretty short argument. It just goes like this. Premise one. And we're just I'm going to talk in terms of um, eternal decrees, okay? You can replace it with causal determinism if you like. You can, whatever you want to put in there. Something that determines what I'll do by whatever means you want to determine it. So premise one. Necessarily. This is a necessary truth. If God decrees that A, whatever A is, will happen, then A will happen. Premise two, no mere human is morally responsible for the fact that if God decrees that A will happen, then A will happen. That's just for one and rule A. Premise three, no mere human is morally responsible for the fact that God decrees that A will happen. Right? You're not, like you weren't alive when God decreed things. It's not, anything, mm -hmm. right? So you're not responsible. Nobody's responsible. No mere human anyway is responsible for the fact that God decrees that A will happen. So it follows from two and three and rule B that no mere human is morally responsible for the fact that A will happen. And of course, if A is something that you do or I do or anybody else, it follows that no mere human is morally responsible for anything they do. And as far as I go, I can't see a single premise to disagree with there. Um, some folks have tried to deny that rule B by trying to provide counterexamples. I have in print defended rule B against um, many uh, uh, alleged counterexamples, and I have another paper in print that just flat out argues it's impossible to give counterexamples to rule B, which should be unsurprising since rule B, I claim, is valid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So it should be uncounterexampleable. Right? Um, so I, I'm, I like this argument way better than any argument that depends on freedom talk because it goes straight for uh, the jugular. It just talks about the incompatibility of moral responsibility. However it is, we become morally responsible. Whatever it is that's required for us to be morally responsible, it's not compatible with things that aren't us determining what we do. Make that God's decrees, make it causal determinism, whatever you like. Those things are not compatible with our doing anything freely. And they come up with the, this argument has the exact same upshot as any of those arguments that the freedom stuff is about, because they're all just trying to show the same thing, which is that, look, if, thing, if things outside of us caused us to do what we do, we're not, we didn't do this. It's not our fault. Blame somebody, mm -hmm. blame Hitler's mom, blame God, you know, whatever, that kind of thing. That makes sense. So I know we've had Guillaume Bignon on here on, on the podcast before. And I know, I think we, when we were emailing, you mentioned he doesn't deal with this particular argument, right? That's right. Yeah. He, he does deal with the consequence argument. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I mean, the gist of what he's saying is like, look, I mean, he basically agrees with the consequence argument. He's just like, yeah, the consequence argument shows that incompatibilist free will is incompatible with determinism, but surprise, surprise, right? Um, what, what, what I want to know, says Guillaume, is uh, is moral responsibility compatible with um, determinism? And this argument 
that is the consequence argument doesn't say that and and i want to go yeah that's right that's why there's the direct argument that does exactly what you want it to do it's it shows that um causal determinism divine eternal decrees whatever you like those things if they determine what we do uh we're not responsible for them um and so 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 i just want to say this direct argument what it shows is those particular if you think that God foreknows what we do in advance because of deterministic factors, then you have a problem of foreknowledge and moral responsibility. Yeah. But, but I don't think anybody should think that God's knowledge or foreknowledge is caused by deterministic processes, whether, whether they're his decrees or whether it's causal determinism. I think God knows things or foreknows things in the same way any or something like the same way any knower knows things and that's just based on how things are i mean it's not like propositions are true because god believes them it's god believes them because the propositions are true so if it's true that i sit here and talk to you guys tonight it's not true because god believed that god believed it because it's true i mean truth depends on and here i'm just quoting trenton merrick's but truth depends on how things are not it's not like how things are depends on what truth is. So similarly, God's beliefs depend on how things are. How things are doesn't depend on what God believes about how things are. You know what I mean? Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Brandon, did you have anything you wanted to, to ask before we... Um, I had a couple questions, but I, I was going to ask real quick. So where did the, the Frankfurt counterexamples on moral responsibility and determinism, where do they, how do they come into play in, into this last bit that you've gone over um, with the, you know, the rule A, rule B uh, example? Yeah. Do, do, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. Yeah. So um, count, like Frankfurt style counterexamples are counterexamples to the so-called principle of alternate possibilities, which says you can be morally responsible for something only if you could have done otherwise. Mm-hmm. Only if there were alternate possibilities open to you. And so Frankfurt style counterexamples are allegedly counterexamples where people are responsible for what they do in situations where they couldn't have done otherwise. Mm-hmm. The direct argument, in my opinion, anyway, circumvents all that discussion because note, notice nowhere in rule A or rule B does it talk about what's required for being responsible. It doesn't right. Okay. Yep. Could have done otherwise. It just says, look, if something is necessarily true, you're not responsible. Now, why is it the case that you're not responsible? Maybe it is because the principle of alternate possibilities is true, or maybe it's something else. In any case, all should agree, no one's responsible, no mere human anyway, is responsible for a necessary truth. And then similarly with, uh, with rule B, if it's really true that you're not responsible for P, for whatever reason, and if it's really true that you're not responsible for the fact that P implies Q, for whatever reason, it seems obviously to follow that you're not responsible for Q either. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thanks. So there's a lot more that I'd like to talk about, but I know we're, we're somewhat out of time. So I, I do want uh, for our listeners, for those who are interested in following you or, or connecting with you, is are there places they can go? Do you have a website? Do, do you do social media, that type of stuff? Yeah, I'm not a, I mean, I don't, I'm not super active on social media, but I do have a Twitter. Uh, it's uh, P as in Paul, which is my first name, 
underscore Roger, which is the name I go by, underscore Turner, at P underscore Roger underscore Turner. That's my Twitter. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, just Roger Turner, uh, probably Tennessee or something like that. <laughs> my website is prturner.weebly.com. And yeah, that's where you can find me. And I have, awesome. I have an academia.edu page like everybody else do. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, we, we want to thank you for coming on to talk to us yeah, about this. Um, if you couldn't tell, Brandon obviously disagrees. So maybe you guys can hash this out later. Um, I, I mean, I disagree too, but I, I don't I don't know nearly enough about this to like talk competently. But that's one thing I, I really like doing on the podcast. But I still talk about it. So. <laughs> is I love having people of various viewpoints come on and talk about things because I think it's really, really helpful and interesting to to learn from each other. Um, so that's, I, I want, you know, our listeners, they may wonder like, well, Brandon and Jordan think this and they didn't offer, you know, 15 counter examples. That's, that's not how I roll on the podcast. I like to have open, honest discussion and, and I mean, debate for later on or whatever. That's fine. Yeah, I, um, I'm say, I, mean, I appreciate, first of all, thanks for having me on. This is super fun. Um, two, I'm happy to have you guys push back. And three, I, I also want to say like, you know, Ask me again in five years what I think, and maybe I'll yeah. change the opinion. You know, I, I, I hope that I hold these sorts of views with an open hand. I mean, I think being a true philosopher is every belief I have, I hold with an open hand because I admit I could be wrong about anything, even the things I believe most deeply. Um, I mean, Calvinism was one of those things for a long time. Yeah. And uh, I'm now convinced that at least certain ways of thinking about that doctrine are false. But I might be wrong about that. And also, I want to say, I mean, I know some non-Calvinists are what I, they're what I would call like anti-Calvinists. They, yeah. They're like, I could never worship a God that would be like the Calvinist God. I'm not like that. I mean, if I get to a new creation and God's like, surprise, Calvinism was right. I'm not going to be like, well, I'm not going to bow the knee to Jesus. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah. oh, that's cool. I love you anyway. Um, <laughs> you're dope. Uh, how you know? Maybe it, it turns out that my ability to know was way more limited than I could have imagined, and that's probably true. So, yeah, I've always found those types of arguments for whatever it may be. I could never worship a god who did this or that. I've always found those a little odd because uh, I thought, well, you know, I mean, I'm limited in my capacity to know things, and the reality is, if God is however God is, I mean just because I, I don't want that doesn't mean it's not going to be true or he, as long as he's good. Uh, like I think he is, then I, I am totally fine with however it turns out. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, I think the other way it's uh, bordering on idolatry possibly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good stuff. Well, uh, thanks again for coming on. Um, I, I really enjoyed talking through the, the arguments and thinking through things. Um, I need to spend some more time thinking about it myself. I think, God's knowledge is a really hard area to understand all of the different implications that go into it. Uh, so this was really helpful to think through some uh, different aspects of it. So thanks for coming on. And for those who've been listening, you've been listening to the only analytic and Baptist and confessional podcast that exists. And we thank you for tuning in. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.